This week we're going to look at the first seven verses in Ephesians. And it's this idea of walking. It's, like, it's The big idea is this idea of unity. But the command there in verse 1 is this idea of walking in a worthy manner. Walking in a worthy manner. Whatever I do, I could still remember when I was in youth group. And uh, I, my dad was, was doing the youth talk at the time. And he showed us uh, the, the, the video of Monty Python and the Ministry of Silly Walks. Has anyone seen that video? And every time I think about walking, walk in the Spirit, that video comes to mind. Walk in a worthy manner. And, but the reality is because Paul is saying, a prisoner for the Lord. And so actually to walk in a worthy manner is to walk in a distinct manner, in a manner that the world doesn't understand. It looks a bit silly to the world. So actually I think that, that, that illustration is actually kind of spot on in a sense. Uh, I showed that to my kids uh, a couple months ago. And uh, for the next five weeks, they were busy doing all kinds of silly walks and losing their balance and running into things and knocking vases over. And Renska looked at me and said, yeah, don't teach them that anymore. So Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we'll return to that verse in a minute. But I just want to zero in on, on this uh, the what Paul says before that, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. If you remember back in chapter three and verse one, Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he stops, he cuts himself off and he does this whole, he talks about the mystery that's been revealed. And then he kind of gets back to it in verse 14 of chapter three and says, so for this reason, as a prisoner of the Lord, he doesn't say it, but it's carrying on from chapter 3 and verse 1. And he prays for the believers. And now he finally gets to where he's been going in chapter 4 and verse 1. And so four things that I think that he's trying to communicate to us as he keeps calling himself, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord. The first thing is this, he's commanding us this out of authority. He has been called as an apostle of God to preach this mystery to the Gentiles and to all peoples, in fact. He's coming to us as it's, it's, it's a statement of authority. I'm suffering on your behalf from this, for, for this truth, for these truths, for this calling, and I'm calling you to it. Follow in my footsteps. Imitate me, is what he's saying. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, strongly exhort you. It's authority. It's also, in that sense, a call to suffering. The way of, of the cross, the way of Jesus, is not the way of the world. The way of the world puts comfort and security and success at the top of the bracket. And the Christian says, actually, my highest calling is not to comfort and safety and security and success, but to walk in a manner worthy, which might mean that I, like Paul, end up being a prisoner for the Lord. There's, I just saw this morning, there's a, they're putting out a prayer request for a, a, a Ukrainian pastor in the city of, uh, how do you pronounce it, Mariupol, um, who's just been, he's just been arrested by the Russians. This is getting a little closer to home. We haven't had this in the West for a very long time. And I'm not praying for it to be here. And we can be prisoners for Christ in other ways. 
other than just physically. But this is a, Paul is speaking from a place of authority. His, prison, his, his status as a prisoner comes out of his apostleship bearing this message. He's calling us to suffer. But he's also, if you remember from chapter 3, it's coming from a place of calling us to share in the privilege. When we suffer according to this world, by what this world looks on as suffering, actually Paul says, no, this is a privilege when we suffer for Jesus. When we give up the things that the world says these things are important. We say, no, those are not important. Actually, we can forgo those things because the true things, the true important things are hidden for us in Christ. Our very lives are hidden for us in Christ. So it's a call of authority. It's a call to follow in his footsteps as prisoners, to think of ourselves already as prisoners of Jesus. Do you think of yourself as a prisoner of Jesus? It's a call to share in the privilege of suffering for Christ and it's a call to imitate him. I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner. And so I want to think about this morning. I love the imagery. I've said it already. I love the imagery of walking. And we're going to kind of dig into that. That's where we're going to, we're going to, we're going to sit this morning is in this, this, this imagery of walking. And in these next seven verses, Paul tells us that, that he wants, to, wants us to walk in three particular ways as, part, as the body of Christ. He wants us to walk together, and that's what we're going to look at in verses 2 and 3, he wants us to walk together. But he also wants us to walk in rhythm. I'm going to, we're going to talk a little bit about James Brown, what it means to walk in rhythm. We'll get there in a minute. We're going to walk in rhythm, but he's also calling us in verse 7 to walk uniquely. And we're going to talk, we'll come back a little bit to this idea of, of spiritual gifts, just briefly at the end. Walk together, walk in rhythm and walk uniquely. And so he continues in verse 2, and he says, walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You've been called to this great salvation that he's just finished laying out in chapters 1 through 3. And he says, walk in a manner that is worthy. And he begins to tell us what that is in verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness. Jesus said that he was humble and gentle in Matthew chapter 11. Verse 39, come to me all you who are weary and long for rest. I am hum- lowly and gentle. I will give you rest. So walk in all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I just want to stick for a second on those four, those four descriptors. Humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing, if you will, bearing with one another in love. This is what it, these are the four aspects of what it takes for us to be able to walk together. Uh, a bunch of us went on a walk yesterday in the park, uh, and we started out together. But actually, by the end, we were kind of all spread out. Because we had little, we had kids with us. We had some people who walk faster and who are strong and young, and they, they walk fast. Some some people were were stopping and messing around with horses, and they got nipped in the armpit with some horse. Jonathan loves horses and took a little pinch in the armpit at some point. Uh, and but the kids loved it, and it was great. But we but by the end we all kind of and at the end we kind of got back together and we sort of more or less arrived together. But in the middle we were so far, and, and actually for a group to be able to walk together. We need to walk in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. 
So I just want to, I want to describe what each of those looks like in the con, in the context of us taking a walk together, if you will. Humility is, is, I'm so glad to be here with you. I get to walk with you today. I'm so glad. I don't care where we go. In fact, where you want to go is more important. I'm willing to go where you want to go just because I get to be with you. I don't care if you arrive late. It's all right. I have the honor of being with you. We'll go wherever. That's humility in the context of walking together. It's about you. It's not about me. Consider yourselves less important. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Consider others better than yourselves, just as Christ did, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. In order to walk together, we have to have humility. We'll talk about the thing that's undergirding this, all of these four in a minute. Gentleness. Uh, my friend Jack over here, he's, I, I, I get the sense that he's, he's, he's a little stronger than I am. Jack could have said yesterday, you know what, I want to go this way, and I'm going to pull you with me, and we're going to go that way. Or, or, or my brother Joe, Joe wasn't there, but Joe, or, or my brother Best, who was there, could have said, I'm going, to, I'm going to verbally convince you, I'm going to batter you physically into going, we're going to go this way, I want to go this way, we're doing it. I don't care, we're doing it. No, that's not, you can't walk together. We not only need to be humble, but we need to be gentle with one another. You have the strength to do it. You have the mental or the physical or the emotional strength to, in a sense, bully someone into doing what you want to do. But actually, you hold back your, your strength under control because, actually, I want to be with you. That's the humility part. And so we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to work with you to figure out where we're going to go. I'm not going to push you and pull you and force you into doing something. We need to be gentle with one another. doesn't mean you're not strong. We are called to be strong. Gentleness is strength under control. The wonderful picture of the bit in the mouth of the horse. A horse is strong, but it's gentle. It, it, it works with the rider. Patience. Andy Stanley has a wonderful quote on patience. Patience is the decision to move at someone else's pace. Rather than pressuring them to match yours, it's choosing to do less than you are capable of for the sake of keeping in step with someone else. Sort of similar to gentleness in that sense. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. This activity is so boring. I hate walking outside. I hate horses. I don't like the trees. Uh, This is the worst. No, I would rather be doing something else, but hey, you're here. I'm so glad to be with you. You know, I'm going to patiently bear with this activity. That's, that's forbearance. I'm going to bear with this because actually we get to do this together. Yeah? Can you imagine trying to walk? If you've ever tried to get a, a group of children to walk together. I want to go over there. I want to do this one. I'm going to go. No, that's why we teach our children humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. Hey, you're going to do it and you're going to have a good attitude about it. I've, okay, I've said that to my kids. may not be all that helpful, but... <laughs> this is what Paul is calling us to. This attitude, the attitude of Christ. We've not been together as a church 
for that long. At some point, we'll have really, really clear opportunities to exercise these with each other because we're going to tick each other, tick each other off at some point. At some point, you're going to get ticked off by someone else in this room. I don't know if you've realized that, that yet, but it's, it will happen. And we'll have an opportunity to put these things into practice. But my question for you is, is perhaps you've already gotten ticked off. You've, you felt frustrated at someone else in our local church that we've called City Church. But, but we've all been part of previous churches as well. And so, in a sense, I was reading through this and going, What's, what, which one of these have I struggled with in the past or am I struggling with presently? Am I struggling with humility or gentleness? Because the things, if you've been in previous churches in the past and you have struggled with one of these four things, you will likely struggle with it here as well. Does that make sense? So where's the thing? What's, what, what's the area? And I suspect that these all go together. But sometimes we feel one more keenly than the other. What's, what's, the, what's the, the, the one that's, that the Lord is pointing out to you and going, I want to do some work here. Actually, He wants to work on the whole lot with you. But often He starts somewhere. And secondly... Undergirding all of these things is the calling to which we've been called. In other words, we, we could do false humility, we could do false gentleness, we could do false patience, we could do false forbearance, we could fake all of these things. But actually, to get them right, we need to be confident, secure in the calling to which we have been called. Because when I'm secure in who I am in Christ, when I know who I am in Christ, I can put you first. It's okay. You're late. It's fine. I'm here for you. You want to go over here? I don't really want to go over here. But you know what? Actually, I know who I am. It's okay. There'll be other times. It's fine. The Lord knows what I need. You're, not, you're walking too slowly for me. You're walking too fast for me. It's okay. I can step out in faith and trust that the Lord's going to help me walk faster or, or I, can, I can walk a little slower. It's okay. I, I know who I am. Jesus has me. I'm secure in the calling to which I've been called. And so undergirding these things is a sense of... So can I suggest to you we go one layer deeper to this idea that actually if you're struggling with one of these four things, you, the Lord is pointing out, and I, su- I suspect that all of us ought to look at these four things and go, yeah, there's a thing there. But actually, the, lower, the layer beneath it is actually, if you're struggling with one of those four things, there's some area of your life where you're not entirely secure in Christ. You're not entirely confident in the calling to which you've been called. Does that track with you guys? Does that make sense? When you know who you are, when your identity is certain, when you're, you're confident in that, you can, you, can, you can be really flexible with people. You might not be flexible naturally as a person, but you can choose to go, it's okay, it's all right. And at the same time, you can also be confident about saying, okay, I, I think this is far enough. Which one of those four does the Lord want to work on you or work on in you this morning? Paul continues in verse 3, and he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is where it gets fun. Uh, Eager. Children are such easy 
because so, so often I feel like I'm a child spiritually as well. And so it, the parallel for me is so, let's go do, let's go go for a walk as a family. Okay. My daughter, who's two, yesterday, for the first time, we saw her imitating the body language of her older brothers and sisters. It's like, that, that's new. Just, just pick that one up. That's not, this is not the body language of eagerness. Okay. Eager. Eager to maintain. Desiring to maintain. You'll notice that word maintain as well. I've talked to, and I do this as well, but sometimes as Christians, we need to, unity is something that we need to go and get. Something that we need to create. It's something that we need to, we need to get everybody together and present a unified front to the world. Is that what it says here? What's the verb? Tell me the verb. Eager to what? Keep, maintain, the, the guard, watch over. What does that mean? What's the implication? If we have to guard it and maintain it, do we need to go get it? No, we have it. We already have it. It's already there. It's in existence. Did you know that? That's good. We can go home then. Maintain it. We already have it. It doesn't mean that we need to, to, to go and look for it, to create it or present it. And actually then, the primary place where our unity gets worked out in practice is in the local church. It's not the only place, but I suggest to you that the local church is the primary place because it's the primary place where we are in connection, in contact with other followers of Jesus. Now, I know most of us, I think all of us, know other followers of Jesus outside of our local church. And so we also have unity with them because they are also in the big, the great assembly, the body, the big capital C church. The invisible church, sometimes we call it. And so you have unity. But the primary place where it gets... <laughs> Did I say it? Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, small church, you just kind of see everybody's faces and... The primary place where this gets worked out is right here amongst us, is where we practice that unity. It's where we get to maintain it as well. And there are other places, but the primary place is in the local church. Paul, so Paul says, eager to maintain not just unity, but unity of the Spirit. You see, not all unity is the unity that we're meant to maintain. And actually, not all unity is good unity either. There is bad unity out there. In the United States, not too long ago, I mean, in, in recent memory, there, there are church, churches that voted unanimously to exclude black African Americans. They were unanimous. They had unity in it. That's the wrong kind of unity. Paul says what kind of unity we have. The unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. And we're going to talk a little, more, a little bit more about what that is in a minute when we get to the following verses. But it's the unity of the Spirit. We have unity with all of those who love and trust Jesus. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. They love and trust Jesus, the most basic definition of what it means to be a follower of, of, of Christ. You love and you trust Him. 
And therefore, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and have been made part of the church. Those are the, those are the people that we have unity with. Can I suggest to you that it's actually a unity that will not be understood by the world. You see, sometimes when we feel like we need to present a unified church, we need to get everybody together, we need to, we got to present this unified, we got to create unity, we're thinking about unity in the world's terms. The reality is that the unity, uh, the unity of the Spirit is not a unity that's going to make sense to the world. Can I suggest to you that part of the reason for that is because if you've looked at how Christianity presents itself, We've got lots of different churches, lots of different denominations, different expressions. Everybody gets some stuff right. Everybody gets some stuff wrong. Some people get more right. Some people get more wrong. But in all of those places, we don't have unity with those ex- the, 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 the groups necessarily, but we have unity with all the, the individuals who are in Christ. But to the world, that looks like that doesn't look like unity. Well, because you've got all these different, these different expressions, all these different churches and denominations and, and networks, and it looks like chaos. It looks like disunity. But remember, we don't have to create the unity. It's already there. It exists. It's happening right now. Which is good news, because if it was up to us to create that unity... we would justifiably be able to look at the state of the church and go, goodness me, what's going on? And sometimes we do, actually. Can I suggest to you this morning that the state of the church, not the local church, the visible, the stuff we can see, but the body of Christ that is all believers, all people who have followed Jesus Christ since Pentecost until His return, the state of that church is doing just fine. And Jesus promised he would build that church. And he is. People are coming to Christ all over the world, right, left, and center. Some more in, more, in, some, place, in some places more than in others. But the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, is doing just fine. Do you believe that this morning? It's doing just fine. And yeah, we've got to deal with the local church issues and, and the other stuff and some of the chaos. But we don't need to have an existential crisis. The church is doing just fine. Paul tells us we need to walk together. Walk together in humility, in gentleness, patience, forbearance, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The second thing he says is walk in rhythm. He says in verse 4, he defines for us what the unity of the Spirit is. Verse 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is, sorry, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I'm going to talk about James Brown for a second. I love James Brown. I love funk. Funk. So, I should pull up my metronome. All right, here we go. I was thinking about this. I didn't know if we should do it. A little demonstration. If it opens. 
There we go. So in regular pop music, in, in, in a lot of different, before funk, in popular music before funk, the accent was on the two and the four. One, two, three, four. One, two. But when, when James Brown came along and funk started to happen, everything was on the one. The one was the only certain beat in the measure. Because nobody else, none of the, the bass, the drums, the electric guitar, the horns, everybody was playing off the beat. One. So it's only on the one. The one is the dance. That's the most important beat. That's where you go, oh, everybody's together on the one. And so what I want suggest to you is that actually for us to walk in rhythm, we need to be together on the one. This is the downbeat, if you will, of Christian experience, doctrine, truth, lived reality, if you will, are these seven things. Was that a good, that sounded pretty good in my head. Was that a good illustration or was it a bad illustration? Okay. <laughs> Did it make sense? Yeah. So it's not just about, actually in a sense, it's not just about walking together, it's walking in rhythm. We're always together in that beat. We might, we might get off on, the, on, on, on the, the two, the three, and the four, but when the one comes around, oh, we all know where it's at. It's the downbeat of the unity of the Spirit. And these things are, are there's actually, there's, we can group these together in, 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 in three ways. The first three, one body, one spirit, and one hope that belongs to our call. That's the first three. The second three is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then the seventh one is the one that undergirds it all, one God and Father of all, who is in all and through all, over all, through all, and in all. So let me take the first three just briefly. In order to walk in rhythm, we've got, we got to get these right, is what Paul is saying. This is where the heart of our unity is. This is what the, the boundaries, if you will. One spirit one body, one hope. The body of Christ is this. We talked about it earlier. Earlier, The body of Christ is all those since Pentecost who have followed and trusted Jesus until His return. That's the church. That's the body of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that the church is the body of Christ. The Spirit is important in that because we were baptized with one Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We're baptized with one Spirit. And this idea of baptism is that you, you, you're, you're dipped into something and there's a result. And so the result of being baptized with the Spirit or by the Spirit is that you become part of the body of Christ, the, the, the capital C, universal church. That's the one I've been looking for this whole time. Yeah? So one spirit, that's the unity of the spirit, into one body and one hope. That hope is the hope that we have. We've been sealed with the spirit and we have this hope. It's a, the sealing of the spirit is the guarantee of this hope that is become that, that, that we look forward to. And if you will, the the touch point of that hope is the, the return of Jesus. His return. He is going to come back. The angels say to the apostles in Acts chapter 1, He's going to return in the same way that you saw Him go. Bodily, visible, 
It's coming. We look forward to it. There's a lot more behind it, but that sort of, if you will, that's the thing that we, we go, yeah, that, that's a tangible reality that we hang on to. Jesus is going to come back and set everything right and fight the final battle and inaugurate the kingdom. That's that one hope that we have. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is how we become part of the body. It's one faith, faith in Jesus, in His death, His resurrection, and him, His person, if you will. We love and trust Him. It's very relational in that sense. There's one faith in one Lord, and He is the one, John chapter 1, verse 33, He is the one who will baptize with or by the Holy Spirit. So when you trust in Him, He baptizes you with the Spirit, and then you are placed in the church. One Lord, one faith. This is what makes you a Christian. There's nothing else that you can do. There's no works that we have to do. There's no rituals that we have to do. There's nothing. You don't become a Christian by birth, not by attending church, not through confession, not through communion or water baptism. There's nothing you can do that makes you part of the church. Only faith in Christ. And then He makes you part of His church by baptizing you with His Spirit. And lastly, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. This is the thing that undergirds it. I think of this like I think about my relationship to my children. I am the father of all of my children. I'm over them. I'm the head of the family. I'm in charge. I'm, I work through them. I'm present. I'm in them because they have get my DNA and my genes. We've got... God in us by His Spirit. He is one God and one Father over all, through all, in all. And this is the one, what I say to my kids is, listen, if I say to my son, listen, I'm your father, but I'm a nuke's dad as well. And so when you are mean to your sister, that means that you and I are not okay because you've just hurt your sister. And so the reality is this, when you hurt, if, if I'm unkind to Paul, and I'm talking about Paul behind his back, and I hit Paul, whatever we do, we, God and I are not okay, because God is not only my God, He's Paul's God as well. He is one God and Father of us all. And so how dare we refuse fellowship to someone whom God has accepted? How dare we? Because all those in Christ look on God and have, in one spirit, we have access to the Father. In one spirit. The same spirit with which we were baptized into the church. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's the baptism of the spirit. One God and Father of all. Can I suggest a couple of practical or applicational thoughts out of that? The first is that there is no unity with folks who add to or subtract from or deviate from those things. 
Paul in Romans chapter 16. And verse 17. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been said. That doctrine, that's the one body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God and Father of all. Contrary to that doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. You see, Paul is not saying break unity with them. He's saying, no, unity has already been broken. They broke it when they deviated or subtracted or added to the heart of our unity, the heart of our faith. And in all of this, if I could, if I could take all of seven of those things and I could reduce it down to one thing, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it all comes down to Jesus. It's His Spirit, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 is great because it talks about the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ. And then it says, if Christ dwells in you. It's His Spirit. It's His body. He's the head. The hope is about Him, His return. He's the one Lord. Faith is in He's the object of our faith. He's the one we trust in that we love. He's the one who baptizes us, and it's one God and Father. How do we know God? Through Jesus, because He's the Son of God. Paul says that in down in verse 13. The only time in the book of Ephesians he calls Jesus the Son of God. And so Jesus, friends, is the dividing line. He's the linchpin. He's the cornerstone, the one by which we, we, we can recognize whether everything else is in line. That's what the cornerstone does. You stick that one down, and then if other stuff is out of line, you know that it's out of line in the building. It's not lined up properly because actually it doesn't match the cornerstone. Jesus is the dividing line. Let me put it like this, practically. If you meet someone from a different country, and they say, ah, I'm a Christian, I trust Jesus, you have unity with them because you both know Jesus. But as soon as we start, ta- as, they, as, as you or they start talking about other things, politics or, or what you like to do in your, in your free time or, or how you manage your families, all of a sudden you start to lose unity because actually even in a, in a single, in a monocultural setting, we all do those things very differently. And the farther you get in terms of culture and, and background, and, and you, you start to get, you have less and less in common. Does that make sense? So as long as we keep talking about Jesus, and that's our aim in this church, is we want to keep talking about Jesus. We want because actually that's if we start if we find unity around something else, we're just a social club. And if we, if or, or we're going to just split it all apart because actually we go we have nothing in common. Jesus is the one. It all comes down to Him. Can I just put out three, three, three areas where, where people are not focusing, people inside the church are not focusing on Jesus anymore. And you, maybe you've noticed some of these. The first is that when we start focusing on creating unity, ironically, we lose it. Why? Because we're focusing on unity and not on Jesus. So unity can become the common thing around which we're, we're going to get together and be unified. 
but actually starts to lose unity, or maybe we have it, but it's not the unity of the Spirit anymore. It's the unity of unity. So when we focus, when we get stuck up on visible unity, actually the way to be in unity with that is to focus on Jesus. We live in a time when a lot, a lot of Christians are, are, are getting caught up in trying to create the visible kingdom of God on earth. We want to see a Christian government, a Christian culture. Listen, if our government becomes, starts ruling by Christian values, that could be a good thing. It could also be a bad thing. History tells us that. If our culture starts to have Christian values, that could be a good thing. But also it could be very deceptive because actually sin's always there. And if our culture starts to take hold of Christian principles and values, it never does it because it loves Jesus. But when we start focusing on that, we lose unity because we're focusing on trying to make the kingdom present here and now rather than focusing on Jesus. Jesus said, listen, I'm going to come back. You'll see me. Last one. Those who focus on the right doctrine. We've got to have the right doctrine. We've got to get it just right. And we got to, it's all laid out and it's perfect and it's, Lord, save us. That's not unity either. I mean, it's a kind of unity around perfect doctrine or the right genre of doctrine, if you will, but it's not the unity of the Spirit. It's the unity of doctrine. Friends, we want to be together over Jesus. You know what that means? It might mean that actually outside of Jesus, we don't have, we don't have as many things in common as if we were creating worldly unity at a human level. But that's okay. Because we keep coming back to Jesus, because He's the one that matters. And in our church, and in our city, where we've got a lot of diversity, this is our country, in fact, actually, we have to do this. We have to keep our focus on Jesus. I'm running long, but just to point out that this is one of those passages, Christianity makes exclusive claims, which means all, other, all religions can't be true, because a lot of religions make, most of them make exclusive claims. They say, this is the way it is. It doesn't leave any room for anybody else to be right as well. And so all religions cannot be true. We focus on Jesus in this list of seven things. And lastly, Paul says in verse 7, just briefly, Paul says, but... But he's coming back, he's saying, hang on, hang on, just so we're clear, unity does not mean uniformity. Just so we're really clear, unity does not mean uniformity. We can all be walking in rhythm, but everybody's gait is unique. The way you walk, nobody else walks like you walk. In fact, if you see someone coming off way down the street, if you know them, oftentimes you can recognize who they are from how they walk before you can see any details about them. And so walk together, walk in rhythm, but actually walk uniquely. And so he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we're not calling for uniformity. Paul's saying maintain the unity of the Spirit, but actually within that there is diversity. And actually, that's needful for maintaining the unity of the Spirit as well. 
how is that done? He says that each grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ's gift is the Spirit. That's His gift. Each of us gets the Holy Spirit when you start loving and trusting Him. If you love and trust Him this morning, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You don't need a second experience. Now, you keep getting more of Him. Sometimes you have moments where you get a bit more of Him. And that happens throughout, but you don't need a second spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. That's Christ's gift. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that it is the Spirit. Let's just turn there just briefly. It's the Spirit who apportions the gifts. That's what that word grace is. Gifts of grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4 lays it out for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4. My wife said to me the other day, when you go to different side passages, sometimes you go too fast and I don't have a chance to get there. So I'm trying to slow down in that. I lived in New Jersey for six years and in New Jersey they talk fast. And I learned to talk fast. So if you need me to, if you, if, actually, Jonathan asked a question a couple weeks ago. He just put his hand, if you need me to slow down, stop, repeat that, that didn't make sense. You have my permission, please do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's that unity. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers them in, in everyone. Verse 7, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's the good of the body. And then if you just skip down, to verse 11, all of these, all of these different gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So Christ's gift is the Spirit, and then the Spirit gives to each one of us gifts by which to, to for, for the common good, to build up the church. We're going to look more in depth at that next week, about gifted people in particular. But just a couple of notes, just briefly as we close. Grace is given to each one. All believers have at least one gift. You have a spiritual gift if you love and trust Jesus this morning. Most of us actually probably have two, sometimes three. Nobody has all of them. So we all need each other because all of the gifts are needed to build up the church. And gifts are always people-focused. Sometimes we think about gifts in terms of human capacities. They're about doing something well. I, I, I'm gift, the, the Spirit has gifted me this way so I can lead worship well, or gifted me this way so I can, uh, I can set out chairs well. Nobody ever has the gift of cleaning toilets, oddly enough. But actually, all of these gifts are meant for the building up of the church, and the, build, and the church is, is the four walls, right? No, it's the people. So gifts are always people-focused. So either people-focused inside the church for the building up of disciples or outside the church for making new disciples. Evangelism, and that's a big broad category, outreach, helping, serving. Can I, can I try and make... I, I tried to, we talked a bit about it with prayer earlier. We've been talking a lot about one-to-one -one Bible reading in our church. And if you don't have this perspective a lot already, I would, I would urge you to be on the lookout 
for who the Lord is, is going, ah, you could read scripture with this person in a discipleship way. Perhaps there's someone that you know who doesn't know Jesus but has questions. And rather than saying, hey, let's read Tim Keller's Reason, to, Reason for God or, or something else, you could say, hey, let's read the book of Mark together and talk about who Jesus is. But can I suggest to you that actually that idea of Bible reading is a really helpful way to think about how different gifts manifest in the church. Because actually, we can have one person who has the gift of helps, and someone else who has the gift of prophecy, and someone else who has the gift of encouragement, and they can all do Bible reading with someone else, and actually you get something different out of it. So if I'm reading the Bible one-to-one with someone who has the gift of helps, I might come away with really practical ideas about how to serve someone else. I might read the Bible with someone who has the gift of prophecy and come away with, with being strengthened. That's what it says that Paul, uh, Barnabas and in Acts chapter 7 or 8, I think. They, they, they were prophets and they strengthened with many words the brothers. So you might come away strengthened, perhaps with a strong sense of conviction about what the Lord wants you to do. You could read... I can't go this way. I'll go back this way. You can read the Bible one-to-one with someone who has the gift of encouragement and come away and you actually are encouraged and and are learning a thing or two about being encouraged. Does that make sense? All of our gifts are people-focused and the stuff that we actually do, you could serve coffee with someone who has the gift of helps and you learn about having a servant heart. You could serve coffee and, 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 and with someone who has the gift of encouragement and actually that's just an, that's just an excuse to talk to people and encourage them. Are you tracking with me there? And so what Paul is saying is that actually each of us have a different gift, different gifts. The church needs them. No one has all of them. And actually the best way to discover what gifts you are is to look around where's the need and muck in and start serving. Very oftentimes, if you don't know what gift you have, and if you do know, well then, it's time to get busy. Let me close with this. I want to come back to the idea of focusing on Jesus and just looking around at folks who are here this morning, you guys who are here this morning, others who are not with us but are, are, are committed to being here, looking around at my neighbors, at our city, and going, we are so different. The more I talk to people who are different than I am, different, a different ethnicity, different cultural, different background, even, who, even those who look like me but are English, we're so different. And friends, as we are together, as we move forward together, we have to keep our focus on Jesus. We've got, we've got to figure out how to do that. And the good news is, is that there is so much joy and peace and purpose. He's got good stuff for us to do as we look at Him, as we follow and are in step with Him.